Yo, 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 welcome to another edition of the Round Ball Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Ford. You can follow me on Twitter if you are so inclined at Corbin NBA. This is a Sports Ethos presentation, so check out Sports Ethos online, sportsethos.com. Check them out on Twitter at Sports Ethos. They have literally everything you're looking for. Basketball, baseball, football, gambling, fantasy, disc golf. Disc golf? Yes, disc golf. You name it, they have it there. So check them out one more time on Twitter at Sports Ethos, S-P-O-R-T-S-E-T-H-O-S, had to remember there, and online, sportsethos.com. Today is Monday, the 16th of January, the middle of the month, pretty much. But more importantly, today is Martin Luther King Day, MLK Day for short, if you are not aware of that um i literally have nothing to say but shame on you um no but joking aside um it's a federal holiday in the united states marking the birthday of martin luther king jr um he was born in 1929 his actual birthday was january 15th but it's marked on the third monday of january each year and it's been done this way since 1983 obviously martin luther king is the one person paramount with the mid-20th century struggle for civil rights. He's the one person you think of when it comes to that. His adoption and consistent um, insistence on nonviolent resistance to achieve equal rights for black Americans was what earned him the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, really cemented his legacy for years to come for all of us, and not only extended for African-American folks such as myself, but from back then, but all marginalized parties to be able to take these themes, take his beliefs, and continue them on to this day. Um, real quick, um, King was born in 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was heavily influenced by his father, who was also a church pastor. And in 1936, his father led a march of several hundred African Americans to Atlanta City Hall to protest voting rights discrimination. And King really took that and ran with it um, from high school, from his high school debate team. Uh, to Atlanta's Morehouse College. Uh, He graduated in 1948 with a bachelor's degree in sociology. Then he went to a seminary and then pursued a doctorate. Uh, And then once he was done with his doctorate, he returned to the South in 1925. He went to Boston to do that. Um, And that's where he went and got married to Coretta Scott, um, who was a student at the New England Conservatory of Music. But when he came back is right around the time when Rosa Parks made history when she refused to give a receipt for a white passenger on a Montgomery bus. And so because of that, the Montgomery's black community really staged an extremely successful bus boycott. Uh, King playing a major role in that in 1955. uh, His arrest and imprisonment as the boycott's leader really propelled him to the national stage. This is where we saw him as the lead figure of the civil rights movement. Um, Later, with other black church leaders, King founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC for short, which mounted nonviolent protests against racist Jim Crow laws that were rampant in the South. Um, He was mostly inspired by um, Muhammad Gandhi's model of nonviolent resistance, and he believed that this peaceful protest would lead to more sympathetic media coverage and public opinion. And that's exactly what happened um, when civil rights activists were subjected to violent attacks. You know, these were televised. You know, they said the revolution would be televised. Do you, you know that saying? And that was something that happened then. And with King 
behind us the driving force the civil rights movement ultimately achieved achieved victories you had the passage of the civil rights act in 1964 and then you had right after that the voting rights act in 1965 and you know king was not only known for his boycotts and his um excuse me, not just his boycotts and protests in nonviolent fashion, but he was also known for his speeches. Um, obviously, you know, he gave his most famous speech. It was a 17-minute I Have a Dream speech in 1963 uh, during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which attracted over 250,000 people there to rally for the civil and economic rights of black Americans in the Capitol. And this was just really big. I mean, we all know free at last free at last, thank God almighty, I am free at last, that last rousing sentence that really drove the crowd up, and we hear this again and again, and you'll probably hear it today, you know, if you're looking at any NBA games, because of their celebration of MLK Day, and and MLK and his legacy, so it's a lot there, Um, way more than I'm going to give here in this, like, four-minute quick spiel but it's just something important to me um something i think it should be important to all of us in terms of just keeping it in mind uh king of course we all know was assassinated on april 4th 1968 by james earl ray in his memphis hotel and it was tragic but his legacy has lived on you know what he said and what he stood for was much bigger than king the person and was something that was needed at the time to propel millions of not only African Americans, but other marginalized parties forward to bring those discussions more to the forefront. There's still uncomfortable discussions to be had about race and class and all of that, but now at least the conversation can be had when before it was almost taboo to speak of. So definitely important there. And I just want to close with a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. And it says, There's nothing greater in all the world than freedom. It's worth going to jail for, it's worth losing a job for, it's worth dying for. My friends, go out this evening determined to achieve this freedom which God wants for all of his children. Just thought that was important to take a moment to spotlight King's life and legacy just briefly. But uh, kind of using this as a bridge because the NBA has the, a showcase of games that they play on MLK Day. Um, this is something they've done every year for a number of years now. I'm trying to remember when they first started doing that. Um, I do not remember. Wow, way to do my research, Corbin, right? I do know, I had the number of games they played on MLK Day, 358. So, you know, I could do the math, you could do the math, but 358 games have been played on MLK Day. And today there will be nine more added, including four nationally televised games on TNT and NBA TV, and then, of course, another additional five games available on League Pass. And we'll talk about those games in a minute as we look forward. I'm just bringing that up to the table because this is important for the NBA. This is important for um, us as a people, uh, for me personally, just did the math. (laughs) <laughs> NBA's played on MLK Day for the last 36 years, so there you go with that. Um, it's just something to think about. So we're going to talk about that here in a second, but before we look forward, we have to look back. We had a great slate of NBA games last night, so without a moment's pause, we will continue right along. So let's look at the first game, well, the highlight game for me. Um, actually, we'll save that for last. We're going to run through just some quick ones real quick. The Blazers beat the Mavericks 
without Luka Doncic, 140-123. to 123. Uh, Big game for Damian Lillard, 40 points, 6 assists, 20 points apiece for Anthony Simons, Yusuf Nurkic, and Jeremy Grant. 10 points off the bench for Nasir Little. And honestly, I mean, the Blazers shot 50% from the field. They shot 38% from three and 88% from the free throw line. Mavericks didn't come close to that. 46% from the field, 33% from the field, um, 33% from three rather, and then 81% from the field. For Dallas, they were led by Spencer Dinwiddie, who had a big game with 28 points and nine assists. Jaden Hardy off the bench was cooking. I love Jaden Hardy, y'all. I had, um, just, I had a great time with Lauren Gunn a couple weeks ago, uh, talking Dallas Mavericks, talking about how important it was for Jaden Hardy to get some more run. And I was bemoaning the fact that he slipped as far as he did in the first round past the Lakers, who took Max Christie, who was nice, but we could have had Jaden Hardy. And I was very annoyed by that, knowing that this guy was a first round talent and shouldn't have slipped as far as he did. But he did. Dallas. Uh, acutely went and picked him up, or astutely rather, went and picked him up, and he had a huge game, and it's had a couple of strong performances here. He's strung together a few really good nights, but he had 25 points, two rebounds, and two assists for the Mavericks. Uh, Christian Wood had double-double, 23 points, and 16 rebounds. He is someone I'm definitely looking at come this trade deadline, because are you going to extend him if you're Dallas? I think it'd be smart to do it. He's still just 27, uh, plays really well inside-outside, has great chemistry with Luka Doncic, and can be a more of a secondary scorer uh, at that forward-slash-center position. But if not, then he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. You might as well try to deal him and get something for him. So that's going to be interesting to see what they do there. Um, but ultimately, without Luka Doncic, as has been the case most of this season, no Luka, very little chance of a Mavericks victory. So uh, Luka was out. It wasn't just Luka who sat out. Um Although Luca missed it with left ankle soreness, but Tim Hardaway was also out with a left ankle sprain. And honestly, the Mavs have just been dinged up all season, really. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith is still out with a right abductor strain. Josh Green's been out with a right elbow sprain. Maxi Kleba's been out with a right hamstring tear and will continue to be out. So that's just something they've had to deal with. And yeah, that they were shorthanded. Uh, Portland came in. It was a close game for the most part, but come the second half, Portland went and blew that bad boy wide open, and they got the win there. The Kings lighted the beam again against the San Antonio Spurs, 132-119. to Harrison Barnes only missed one shot, 29 points, two rebounds, two assists. De'Aaron Fox had 23 points. 18, or 19 for Davion Mitchell, 18 for DeMontis Sabonis. All in all, the Kings had six players score in double figures. They are now 24 and 18. The most games they've been over 500 at this point in the season since 2005, 2006. So way to go for the Kings. They are well on their way to a playoff berth. And it is crazy to say that, but I'm very excited that they have a possibility of making that happen. For the Spurs, listen, it's been rough, uh, especially once, uh, Devin Vassell went down or Devin Vassell went down, but, uh, they had a, quite a few players in double figures as well. Uh, they had five of their own, led by Jacoperto, who had 23 points and seven boards. 21 points for Josh Richardson, 20 for Kelton Johnson, and then 16 uh, points, seven rebounds, and eight assists for Trey Jones, and 15 for Jeremy Sohan, but the defense wasn't there. The Kings scored 30 points in every single quarter, uh, just capped off or, or topped off with a 39-point 
third quarter, and the Spurs defense, which has been pretty bad all year, had absolutely no way of stopping Sacramento. So that was just what it was. And now the Spurs have continued to be on the side. I think they lost now 11 of 13. They are 13 and 31. They are they are the one team you we can safely talk about when it comes to Victor Womanyama, Scoot Henderson, and the like. No doubt about it. Nuggets beat the Magic in a close one. 116 to 119. Uh, really went down to the clutch at the end there. Uh, Aaron Gordon went and knocked down two big free throws to cap off a uh, uh, game-high 25 points, 8 rebounds, and 5 assists for him. Then the Magic went and uh, had a free throw. They were, well, Okay, let's, let's take it back. Aaron Gordon down by down by one goes or down by two goes and makes two free throws nuggets up by one right then nuggets up by one 116 115 then jamal murray fouls um markel folds and at first you're like did he think that he had a foul to give like what was the reasoning behind that because i didn't understand it because it sends Marco Fultz to the line. I thought it was just tremendous uh a miscalculation of time and 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 clock by Jamal Murray. But as it turns out, Murray apparently knew all along as Marco Fultz goes up and has a chance to make both free throws and give the magic a lead and misses the first free throw. Now I was watching the broadcast and it was hilarious because as soon as he missed the first free throw, this Denver they're playing at, Jamal Murray turns and takes a bow in front of the Denver crowd apparently knowing that Mark Fultz would not make both of his free throws. I thought that was hilarious. In either event, Mark Fultz did make the second free throw, but all that did was set the stage for a final clutch game-winning three-pointer from one Nikola Jokic to cap off a beautiful triple-double for him. 17 points, 10 rebounds, and 14 assists. He made the game-winning three-point shot leaving point two left on the clock. Of course, the Magic had nothing they could do with that, needing a three, and that was the game. Uh, just a monster game for Nikola Jokic, just dominating while looking pretty decent in terms of scoring numbers. That was his only three, was the game winner. So, really interesting to see that. Seven players scored in double, or six players scored in double figures for the Nuggets. Uh, again, Aaron Gordon at 25, Nicole Jokic at 17, 18 for Murray, 16 for Michael Porter Jr., and then 12 points apiece for both Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Bruce Brown. For the Magic, listen, they played well, they stayed with it. Bull Bull had a revenge game, uh, 17 points and 6 rebounds. A nice dunk as well, all in 18 minutes, so he definitely wanted to come in and, and make a statement, and he did that. Um, he didn't lead the way. It was Markel Fultz who actually did with 20 points, 7 boards, and 6 assists. Uh, Franz Wagner had 19 points and 5 boards. Paulo Bancaro had 18 points, 4 assists. But just wasn't enough. Uh, Gary Harris played 21 minutes and could have just been walking up and down. 5 points for the game for him. Uh, free Terrence Ross and Gary Harris. They need to be on teams that can utilize them. I mean, neither are playing exceptionally well, but at this point, they're like just old, just young enough to give a boost to a veteran team. Uh, while being just old enough to not fit the requirements or the way that this team wants to go. So, definitely interesting in my opinion for that. The Nets might have a problem. And the problem is that I'm not sure if Kyrie Irving is to be trusted as the number one option. Let me explain. The Nets played the Oklahoma City Thunder last night, and they got beat. 
ultimately pretty comfortably 112 to 102 uh, behind a 37 point fourth quarter from the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, it was definitely something to see for sure. Uh, let's talk about the Thunder first. Their backcourt was stars. Just straight up stars. Combining for 56 points, 15 rebounds, and 10 assists between the two. Uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander and Josh Giddy both had 28 points apiece. Uh, Giddy had 9 rebounds and 9 assists. SGA had 7 rebounds and 1 assist, but both played amazing. And then Lou Dort also joined them with a double double with a double um, digit scoring game with 22 points, 5 rebounds, and 2 assists. So those are three that did the most damage. No other Thunder player scored in double digits, but no other Thunder player needed to with the way that those cats played. Um, Honestly, both players should be all-stars. This all-star field is going to be so jam-packed. It's crazy. I'm okay if Giddy doesn't make the all-star team. I mean, he's been fine, but I, I'm not mad if he doesn't. But I am definitely going to be mad if SGA does not make the team because he has balled out and been balling out just consistently this entire time. Uh, both the backcourt combined for uh, two or eight shooting from three as well. We don't got to talk about that. For the Nets, though, this is what happened. So the Nets leading score, starting five of Edmund Sumner, Kyrie Irving, Nick Claxton, Royce O'Neal, and Joe Harris. Your leading scorer was not Kyrie Irving. Your leading scorer was not Joe Harris. Your leading scorer was not Sumner or Claxton or O'Neal or Watanabe or Morris or TJ Warren. It was Seth Curry. And mind you, Seth Curry can fill it up. So it's not like it's not possible for him to go, you know, supernova and knock down, you know, seven or eight threes and get to the free throw line a couple times. Not a big free throw guy, but knock down a couple jumpers and, you know, get like 26, 27 points, right? Like that's what happened, right? No. Curry had a good game, 23 points, 9 of 15, 3 of 8 from 3. But that was it. And this was the highlight of a Nets team that shot 42% from the field and 29% from three. Oh, by the way, 63% from the free throw line. The ball is just not going in consistently enough for this Brooklyn Nets team. And their main guy, their catalyst, their their other superstar, you know, alongside Kevin Durant, was Kyrie Irving. Ben Simmons doesn't count superstar and also did not play uh, due to back uh, tightness. So Kyrie Irving played. Kyrie Irving's a star, right? But Kyrie Irving didn't get the free throw line not once. Shot 35% from the field and 14, count it, 14% from three. 7 of 20 from the field, 1 of 7 from three. Had six rebounds and six assists, but just 15 points for him. Still finished a plus four in the plus minus, so, you know, for whatever that's worth for you, that's there. But I don't know. I mean, over the last couple of games, the Nets have not had a consistent rhythm with Kyrie as their main guy. It's easier to scheme around and take him out of the game a little bit. Um, He can still go supernova for sure, but he does it at the expense of the team it seems like and then if he's not playing well the team man good luck you know now don't get me wrong the thunder have been a very good team this season uh with the scrappiness that plays above their record you know like they could definitely be a playing team they could also sink back and you know be in the lottery not definitely not top five or whatever but you know i can see him sitting number 14 13 the the party in the west is such that it's all a big jam but the point being is the thunder are no small potatoes they're a decent basketball team so losing to them is no it's no no small problem but i'm just saying Kyrie Irving to be the player that the nets pay him to be the player that he's been consistently in the past um alongside other great players you know and occasionally in his own right just hasn't been super great and we haven't seen it i mean we saw him play on a deep Celtics team right um, and then when he played as the main guy, they had made success. We saw him with the Cavs, but let's be real, the Cavs record, I think we knew this, we talked about this way back during the days back then, but 
when LeBron wasn't playing, the Cavs' record was something awful. Well, guess what? On games LeBron didn't play, Kyrie usually did play. So you had that as well. And now you have these Nets games without Kevin Durant. Now, mind you, last year, you know, Kyrie was only playing, I think it was only away games at the time when KD was out with his knee injury, you know, stuff like that. So you weren't getting Kyrie every game, and that makes sense, and I get that, if I'm remembering the time right. But at the same time, now you have him another stretch, and it's just the third consecutive time that you can add to the sample size of Kyrie Irving playing as the one lone star and the successes or deficiencies that come with that happening. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it is something. I'm not saying it's everything. But I'm saying it's something to look at. So that's that's a game that happened as well. The Nets just they just didn't have it. The Thunder surged past the Nets rather easily. We're knocking down big shots and the Nets were hapless to keep up with them. Clippers went and beat the Rockets pretty handily, 100, 121 to 100. Uh, you had a big game by one Terrence Mann, who led the Clippers in scoring with 31 points, 12 of 16 from the field, knocked down five three-pointers out of eight attempts, had six rebounds and four assists as well. Really filled in perfectly in that Paul George type role, don't you think? <laughs> um, you also had 30 points from Kawhi Leonard, who's finding his form a little bit. Still trying to get lift on his jumper, his legs underneath him, particularly from three. But he played really well last night. Um, well, yesterday afternoon, rather. 30 points, six rebounds, four assists. Essentially matching Terrence Mann's production. 12-24 from the field, 3-5 from three. You also had double-digit scoring from Norman Powell at 18 points and played really productive off the bench. Four rebounds and three assists. Yeah, 10 points from Avicii Zubak, and that was it for the double-digit scoring for the Clippers. Although, shout-out to Robert Covington, who in 23 minutes had 8 points, 4 rebounds, 5 assists, and was a plus 20. Really solid. Only person who did play better in the plus-minus department was one, Norman Powell. So, really good to see him there. The Rockets, listen, they already shorthanded, lost a few of their guys, Jalen Green being among them, um for and, and Jake Sean Tate as well for leaving the bench during an altercation between Garrison Matthews and Malik Monk in the Rockets Kings clash a couple nights ago. So they were short. Um and they were led with Eric Gordon who had twenty four points, two rebounds and or three rebounds and two assists. At this point Eric Gordon wants to go. He's checked out. Like he's playing well, solid enough. I think he can definitely help a team, but he's not a good fit on this Rockets team if he stays past the trade deadline. So I really hope that they part ways with him. He's had a Decent run, let him go. Kenyon Martin Jr. was second for the Rockets in scoring at 22 points, 9 rebounds. Shot pretty efficiently from the field, 9 of 14 from the field. Uh, after that, 15 points for Alperin Shingun, 12 points for Jabari Smith, although not on great efficiency, and then 11 points off the bench for Tari Eason, who played well in 19 minutes. 5 of 6 from the field, knocked down as 1-3, 4 rebounds as well, 2 assists, 3 steals, 1 block. Great game for Tari Issa, just putting it all together. But it wasn't enough. This Clippers team was just too good. And when Terrence Mann and Kawhi Leonard, I was going to say Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, combined for 61, um, you better have some good defense or be able to outscore them. And the Rockets were incapable of doing either. Knicks beat the Pistons 117-104. to Julius Randle scored a season-high 42 in the victory. Did on good efficiency to 62%, I might say. 15 of 24 from the field, 4 of 7 from 3. His three-point stroke seems to have returned. Made all free, th- all free throws he attempted, which were 8. Had 15 rebounds and 4 assists as well. 
Uh, he was joined with 27 points for Jalen Brunson, who's been playing so, so strong. 27 points for him, 5 rebounds, 4 assists, 9 to 17 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3. Really good for him. 17 points for Emmanuel Quickly, whose name for some reason was swirling around in trade rumors. I am not sure why. He is a really good guard that I think would help the Knicks more um, if they would just appreciate his value. But 17 points for him. Three rebounds, three assists as well. And then 13 points for RJ Baird, who did not have a very good game, but finished positive in the plus-minus category, so there you go. For the Pistons, they were led by Jaden Ivey, who shot 719 from the field, 2 of 8 from 3, yikes, but also had 6 rebounds and 6 assists, as well as 21 points. They also had 21 points from Sadiq Bey, who knocked down 5 threes. After that, off the bench, Kevin Knox had 16, a little revenge game against the Knicks, maybe? Alec Burks had 14, another revenge game against the Knicks, baby. <laughs> and then Isaiah Liver, Livers had 11. That was it. That was all they wrote. Uh, listen, they just didn't have enough to bring. It, they went to the a gunfight with a water gun. Um, they couldn't contain Julius Randle. Had some nice dunks. Played really well. Just a little resistance. Um, the Pistons uniforms, I didn't like them. They reminded me of the Milwaukee Bucks alternates, and not in a good way. And, yeah. They just took the L. That's just what it was. <laughs> Not a whole lot to say there. Got to talk about the Bulls. So, the Warriors came into Chicago. And listen, they've been one of the worst road teams in the NBA this season. Literally, like, one of the worst. I'm not kidding. I'll go into a stat here in a second. But, playing against, you know, the Bulls, who have been super hot themselves, I could see the Warriors going okay, like we might have this little in hand, I wouldn't be shocked if that was something that had happened. Because the Warriors haven't had a game that they've lost against Chicago since March 2nd, 2017. They have handled Chicago quite easily all of these years. And I... Wouldn't have been shocked either. Chicago's been up and down there without the services of DeMar DeRozan. Um, you know, Zach Levine is still kind of nursing his way back in. Like, I would not have been shocked. However, the Bulls won. And the Bulls won behind a dominant performance by, nope, not Zach Levine. Nope, not Patrick Williams. Sorry, Patrick Williams fans. Uh, Ayudusumu played well, but nope. Alex Caruso, baby? Mm -mm. Nope. It was Nikola Vucevic. Which, I'm sure yeah, I probably would have thought before Ayo Dusumo, but I had to build the suspense some way. Nikola Vucevic had a career-tying high, and easily a Bulls high. 43 points, 13 rebounds, and 4 assists. Monster game. 18 of 31 from the field. 5 of 10 from 3. A plus 12. For Chicago. And mind you, Vooch has had no problem with the Kings, I mean, with the Warriors over the last couple of years. He's averaged in his last five games against Golden State 23.6 points per game, 12.6 rebounds per game, and 5.4 assists. So, you know, the Warriors didn't really have a good matchup for him. He can space out, you know, Kavon Looney and other centers. He's just too big for guys like Draymond Green from a size perspective, from a height perspective, to shoot over them. He has a good blend of scoring. Uh, he can definitely rebound and some passing chops that has given the Warriors some issues in the past. But this was an otherworldly night for Vooch. And 
what was crazy about it is that his career high of 43 um, that he tied here against the Warriors was actually one he set when he played for the Magic against Chicago. And Chicago traded him like for him about, about a month later. So, I mean, like in Chicago, they up there go, wow, 43? We need a trade for him. Which I think is hilarious. Not that that's how it happened, but it's just funny. But Vooch was huge for the Bulls. Um, they played through him, which I think they should do kind of in general. I feel like ISO ball is something that, you know, um, DeMar DeRozan clearly thrives in and Zach Levine can do as well. But as far as the like other team-centric offense, going through the post, go out of it. Nick Vooch can do pick and roll, pick and pop. You can integrate him in different ways. I'm not saying he could be your main player, but he's the only offensive guy on your team that's offensive first and is more reactive. He isn't going to make plays for himself. So you need to put him in position to make him benefit and create offensively in a way that works for him. And that is one of the ways to do it, in my opinion. So I hope that they do. Uh, but as of yesterday, they did focus on that. Uh, his 31 shots were the most by a wide margin. And yes, some of that was inside, tipping shots, rebounds, that sort of thing, which is a really good play for him. But again, like I said, it wasn't the only one. Zach Levine hit 27 points. Only made one of his eight threes, but definitely... Uh, made the most of his opportunities from the free throw line, went 12 of 14 from there, had nine rebounds and six assists as well. And this was his sixth straight game of 25 points or more. So really good for him there. Um, Ayudusumu was one of two players who had 12 points apiece, the other being Alex Caruso off the bench. Kobe White played well, only missed one shot, six to seven from the field, but he made both his threes. Uh, just really good all-around play for the Chicago Bulls, who, like I said, were without DeMar DeRozan and Javante Green. We don't need to mention they were always, they've been out of Lonzo Ball. So, really good for them there. For the Warriors, Splash Brothers played well. They combined for 46 on 11 of 25 from three and 17 of 36 from the field uh, with 14 rebounds and eight assists between the two, but it just wasn't enough. Uh... After that, off the bench, Jordan Poole had 15 points. It was pretty efficient in doing it, uh, but he also had four turnovers and four fouls as well. Uh, Anthony Lamb scored well, 14 points and um, two knockdown threes, but he also fouled out, made some dumb errors in terms of not closing on the man or fouling a guy when he did. Just really clumsy play for him. Um, and then after that, um, I would say another solid player, at least a player that I would give a shout to, was Draymond, because 8 points, 4 rebounds, 7 assists, but even his presence and the marks he left on the game felt muted um, compared to, of course, Vooch and others on the Bulls. So, yeah, with that, the Warriors are now 4-16. and 16. That's 20% on games away from home, which is the second worst in the NBA. They've been just absolutely pitiful there. Whether they have Steph Curry, whether they don't have Steph Curry, whatever the reason is, uh, they just don't seem to be able to continue any sort of traction in terms of success when it comes to playing away from home. So that's something that the Warriors definitely need to work on. I mean, you could say they're still kind of easing into it. Of course, just getting Curry back, guys in and out of the lineup. So all that can be said. Not saying it can't, but that is something that's getting concerning now. 20 games in and 4-16, and 16, not the splits you're looking for. That's all you got to say, not the splits that you're looking for. Four, the Lakers. <sighs> This is painful, y'all. Lakers lost by one point to the Philadelphia 76ers, 113-112. to They were very, very close there, and I don't understand what happened. Well, I do understand what happened. Um, 
Let's talk about one thing first, though. LeBron James. First half. Nice little mid-range jumper off a path from Russell Westbrook. Normal shot in the flow of the game. LeBron scored a lot of points in this game. 35 points to be exact. 10 assists and 8 rebounds as well. But what that shot did was get LeBron one step closer to NBA history. With the shot, LeBron hit 38K. That's right. LeBron James became the second player in NBA history to score 38,000 career points. He is not that far off from Kareem, ladies and gentlemen. James and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are the only members of the NBA's 38,000-point club. And James is going to pass Abdul-Jabbar. It's going to happen. In fact, at this pace, he can pass Kareem within the next month. This could be early February at the scoring pace he's getting at if he continues there. He didn't want to talk about his milestone after the game, and I get it, because it seems like every time LeBron has any milestones with the Lakers, they lose, which is just sad. Uh, when he passed Kobe Bryant on that fateful uh, day, they were playing Philadelphia, and they lost that game as well. Like It doesn't matter. When they play these games, it's, it's weird because LeBron is the ultimate team-first player who just happens to really be a very good individual player. But when he gets these individual accolades, just when they happen to fall on those days, the Lakers end up losing. But this wasn't LeBron's fault. At the last couple seconds of the game, Joel Embiid had the ball around the mid-post area, free throw line extended, and it was a switch. Russell Westbrook was on him. And I'm like, Lord have mercy, what are we doing? Like, the 76 space to Florida perfection, but in my head, I'm like, double Embiid, get the ball out of his hands, force, you know, a kick out to a, a rushed player, like, do something. But they didn't. Lakers stood pat, Russ played D on Embiid, who, for his, for his credit, didn't go... They possibly pick up an offensive foul trying to burrow, you know, the rest of the basket. He kind of went into him a couple times to dribble and then try to rise up for a jumper. Uh, the jumper hit hard off the back rim. Russ got the rebound. Russ is going down the court. Seconds are going down the clock. The game is in the balance. The Lakers are down by one. At that point, I remember, I'm like, the Lakers have a timeout. Why isn't Coach Ham calling a timeout? Like, call a timeout. Get a play you need. They've been really doing really well in ATOs. Like, try to make that happen. But no. Ham said, just play. Fine. My second question is, when is LeBron going to touch the rock? Because if it ends on LeBron, that's one thing. But Russell Westbrook, I don't know if I like that odds. Russ is on Embiid, so normally you would say Russ has an advantage. But in this case, I didn't think that he did. I'm like, Russ isn't really going to be shooting the jumper, although he was 2 of 5 from 3. Like, that, that mid-range J he had isn't there. Uh, he started to make a move and lost his dribble momentarily. That burned some seconds of the clock and also made sure that Russ didn't gain, get a chance to gain any acceleration on a sudden move. And so what did Russ do? He ended up trying to barrel to the rim on the right hand, on the left hand side, threw up a ball that was maybe a pass and maybe a shot. What it was was deflected by George Yang, and that was the game. That was the game. Uh, James said after the game, it's just frustrating to get in these positions and not be able to come up the victory. We got the stop. We gave ourselves a chance to win, and we didn't execute. We're playing good basketball. We're just not winning games, end quote. I will say, yes, that's true. They did play good defense. They did give themselves a chance down the end to get the win. They did not. But I say, yes, a lot of that's on Russell Westbrook, because come on, man. Like, take the jump if you're going to take the jumper. If you thought you had the advantage, then do what you have to do. If you didn't think you had the advantage, then get the ball to the guy who's 38K because the guy knows how to put the ball in the basket and has done quite a good job of doing it over the course of the evening. I like a LeBron James on Tobias Harris matchup any day of the week over a Russ versus Embiid. I don't care how 
fast Russ may be. I don't care how good Russ's jumper might be going. I don't care how Tobias Harris is better size-wise with LeBron. I really don't care. That's what I would go with. But Russ said it's Russ time, and the Lakers lost, and that's unfortunate. We'll see how they bounce back. They play to, they play uh, tonight. We'll talk about that later. I'm not sure if LeBron will play. Um, in the second half of the back-to-back, so we will see. Uh, but for the 76ers, let's talk about the winners now. Give them some love. Joel Embiid, we already mentioned him a couple times, played amazing. 35 points, 11 rebounds, 4 assists, 12-21 from the field. Let's face it, between Thomas Bryant and Wenyan Gabriel, those bigs played hard and capable, but they can't stay with Embiid. I was hoping that the Lakers would have signed DeMarcus Cousins. And mind you, there's no guarantee that Cousins could have done it. But I was hopeful. That's how bad it was getting at some points. His jumper was on fire. He was making three. His mid-range was good. When he wanted to get to the rim, he got to the rim. When he wanted to get to the free throw line, he got to the free throw line. 9 of 12 from there. Wasn't a whole lot anyone could do. Definitely not the Lakers. So, easy 35 for Embiid. 24 for James Harden, 9 of 15 from the field, 4 of 7 from 3, 7 rebounds, 13 assists. He, too, seemed to be playing mostly at ease, getting to where he wanted to go to. Had a couple nice stops by Russell Westbrook on him that made him look a little shaken. But for the most part, Harden just dictated pace, played well, knocked down key shots, and did the dang thing. Off the bench, 16 points for Tyrese Maxey, including a really good breakdown left-handed dunk. Uh, didn't shoot the ball particularly well. 6-13 from the field, 1-5 of five from 3, but he did have 5 rebounds as well. Tobias Harris had 15 points, missed every one of the 4 threes he took, but had 5 rebounds and 3 assists. And that was the game for the 76ers. For the Lakers, listen, where you mentioned LeBron. Russell Westbrook, aside from that and some dumb turnovers, really played well. 20 points, 14 rebounds, 11 assists, and I'll take an 11 assist to 4 turnover ratio. That's still in my favor, so I'm okay with that. But that last possession... Goodness gracious. That is really what sealed the deal and laid another L at the Lakers basket. Aside from those two, uh, you had 14 points from Wendy and Gabriel, who played well, 7 of 11 from the field. Great hands to finish around the basket. 13 points for Troy Brown Jr., knocked down a couple big threes, and then 10 points for Thomas Bryant. But that was really all they wrote on that one. And, you know, for the Lakers, it's a shame. Hopefully they can continue and, and keep this momentum in terms of the way they're playing and to actually get a game win to match that level, but we'll see. Alright, y'all. Time for a new little feature I'm bringing on the show. I was going to call it Scouting Sundays, and I still might. Then I was like, mm, I'm going to call it Scouting on Sundays, because if it's going to drop on Sunday, I need to do it on Saturday, right? I'm like, um, but if I do Scouting Sundays on Monday, then come on, that defeats the purpose of the name, because it's Monday and I'm talking Sunday. So I decided to just call it Scouting on Sunday, Maybe to be sure into scouting Sundays. Because all that means is that I'll be doing the prep work on Sunday to have it ready for you on Monday. And the prep work is me doing deep dive scouting into some of the prospects here in this upcoming NBA draft. And this is much to help me out as it is to help y'all out. Because I want to know these players better. I want to get a better feel for who's coming in. Obviously, we know Victor Obanyama is big. Obviously, we know Scoot Henderson is big. But what about the Thompson Twins? What about Cam Whitmore? What about Nick um, um, Anthony Black? Uh, all these other cats that are out there, Nick Smith Jr., what about those guys? And so that's what Scouting Sunday is going to help me do, to do a deep dive into what I like, what I don't like, what I see, what I don't see, and then share that with y'all. And hopefully we all just get more educated on the draft together so it's not doing the normal routine of, oh, March Madness? Okay, time to buckle up and see who the NBA prospects are because the journey starts way earlier than that. Anyways, for today's episode of 
or for today's edition of Scouting on Sundays, I am going to talk about one Keontae George. Really high on Keontae George. Uh, I have him actually third in my mock draft, so yeah, there's a thing there uh, in my first mock draft, that is. But Keontae George is 6'4", 185 pounds. He's a 19-year-old uh, November guy of 2003. Jeez, I feel old. Uh, and he's a freshman in Baylor, uh, primarily a combo guard. He came into college as the second-ranked shooting guard in the nation behind only Kaysen Wallace. Uh, we'll get to him in a future installment. And he was the um, George was the highest-ranked prospect, number nine overall, to commit to Baylor in the program's history. So really good pedigree that George comes from. Offensively, Keontae's really good at creating scoring opportunities for himself, and he has the potential to do it at a high level as well. He's someone I look at as a guy who can be your lead guy either for stretches or for you know the game if his potential is reached um he handles the ball very well gets to where he needs to go um definitely can kind of play that combo guard role playing some shooting guard also playing some point guard the way you would do maybe a bradley beal or have you seen Jalen green run in houston um but george can also score proficiently at all three levels uh, definitely like him better shooting the three in the mid-range. Uh, he gets kind of iffy getting the basket there, but when he does, like he can score there as well. Uh, speaking of that jumper, he's a solid jumper, both from the three and the mid-range. I feel like he might be in love with it a little too much because he relies on it a lot, even when you wouldn't think he has to. But it is something that he seems like he can always get into, and that's really nice to have. As a player who can create your own offense from scratch, scoring consistently, there's a premium of those type of players in the NBA, whether it's off the bench, whether it's starting, a guy you could give the ball to and say, okay, you know what, you can come, run the offense, get us like, uh, you know, a couple assists here and there, a couple points here and there, finish the game with like 15 points, 8 assists, or like 26 points and 9 assists, do your thing. Like, the potential to do that is, is, is something that's in high demand in the NBA. To be able to carry a team's offense for stretches on your own with that from scratch offensive creation. So that's something I think that George has that I really like. George is a solid passer, uh, particularly at the pick and roll. Uh, he can make the lay down pass to the rolling big. Uh, he can consistently find the shooter in the weak side corner. It's nothing flashy. It's not like he's like a Scoot Henderson or something with the way that he's able to see the game. But it is pretty effective. So definitely was big on seeing that from him. Um, defensively, I like the fact that he was active, uh, he was positionally sound, uh, he displayed really good quickness and use of his length on that end, he really tries, his IQ that works on the offensive end in terms of making quick reads and, and getting guys um, the ball when they're open is exactly what helps him snuff out passes, you know, off the pick and roll or cut weak side and, you know, double up on a big as they're posting up or use his hands to swipe down at an unsuspecting ball handler, you know, if they're dribbling too much, whatever the case may be, like, the way he's able to play defense, I think, is really good and really brings that D um, potential to his shooting and scoring. Not a 3 and D guy because he can do so much more there, but I definitely like what he brings to the table from that end. Um, he's technically sound on the end of the floor, knows where to be, moves his feet really, really well laterally, and is able to stay in front of his man, and I think that he has major disruption abilities. I really do. I think that his eye on passing lanes and his timely hands really help him to be a guy that, you know, you could put him on a guy for stretches and really do their best to mitigate him, take him out of the game, at the very least make things difficult for the opponent. So I definitely love George there. Um, as far as weaknesses, a defensive, I was really happy with everything I saw. But offensively, I think his shot selection can occasionally be wonky. 
I think he takes contested shots sometimes with plenty of time on the clock for reasons that honestly only he knows. Uh, there was a player I remember last this past week against West Virginia, where in the third quarter he took a three off of a handoff with a defender in his face from deep in the left wing. And I mean, normal shot. Guys do that. I get it. My issue with that, though, was that there was 14 seconds left on the shot clock to manufacture a much better opportunity. And it didn't happen. Literally, I looked at that play a couple times, and I was like, okay, what is the end game here? Like, the guy's still in your grill. It's not exactly a rise and fire because he's right there. You can definitely get a better shot. Like, why did you go Russell Westbrook on me there and go, it's my time? Like, no, hold up. Evaluate the floor. See if you can get better shot because I promise you you can get a better shot than the air ball he shot from that deep left wing off of a handoff of 14 seconds left on the shot clock. So things like that are just things that kind of bother me. Um, I think his confidence is fine, but he definitely needs to slow down. Uh, speaking of slowing down, he can also be a turnover machine. Uh, like I said, he makes some great passes, some good reads, but also sometimes he throws passes and makes reads that aren't really readily available. Um, trying to make something out of nothing that isn't there. You know, like, I'm going to make, I'm not even going to give you an example, but just trying to conjure up passing lanes or force the defense into conceding something that they're really not doing, which involves the ball being coughed up and the other team going down mainstream, uh, main street, rather. Uh, but yeah, George has had a game with four or more turnovers five different times including two games with six turnovers apiece. So you just can't have that. You know, he forces passes, like I said, that aren't there. And also, as far as his ball handling, well, I think it's really adequate, and I think he can definitely run offense from the pick and roll and do that consistently. Um, if he gets in the traffic, it's not super great. I don't think he used the best, most of his athleticism on the end of the floor. Uh, getting to the basket, uh, elevating. He seems to elevate a lot to make a layup rather than dunk. He'll start off like he is going to dunk and then make a layup, which could either be a quirk of his play style or him not feeling confident about getting up enough to slam that thing home. But also when he gets to the basket, the ball pops out. and it, it, Invariably, it always happens. It's very much the Russell Westbrook special there. Um, but all in all, listen, I am very high on Tante George. Between his shot-making ability his defensive aptitude, and his playmaking potential, I definitely see this guy with his size and the relative youth he has just being 19 still as someone who could really be an impact player at the next level. I definitely do. Um, and when I say impact player, I mean like, okay, I could look at him as my number two guy on a team, on a, on a, on a championship contending team. I really believe that in Keontae George, and that's why right now he's currently number three in my big board. But I love what the guy brings. I love the fact, like I said, that on ball from scratch shot creation in addition to him being able to be involved active and engaged on the defensive end of the floor and have the potential to really be a disruptor on that end like the i'm done i'm sold thank you like you got me the cake is is perfect all right but that's going to do it here for that scouting sunday let me know what you think about it Uh, appreciate any feedback input there uh, definitely can Keontae George. A lot of film out there still getting out there. I know no ceilings did something. I know the scouting report did something. There's some good content on Keontae George, um, including some that I watched several times to track each shot, each turnover, each miss, each assist, rebound, all of that. It was really good to kind of dissect the finer points of George's game uh, and then extrapolate it to make some notes here for this. So definitely let me know what you think. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun doing this one. All right. Got to talk about this game here. So, play swoops. I don't know if you guys know play swoops. Uh, I actually don't fully understand what it is in terms of the whole online or not online seasons. But with NFT, I don't know. I'm not even going to get to it. What I do like about what they do is they have this game every day called play swoops. Uh, 
gm.playshoops.com and what it is they come up with a lineup of players five based off of a common theme whether it's 90s guys or you know players who all played you know with the Lakers or as they're doing uh, last night the 2019-2020 rookie first team and so they'll put those players out there and then they give you a pool of players to select from each with a different market value whether it's one dollar to five dollars and your budget which they adjust each time um, and then you have to make a team to match up with the Soups team. You make that lineup, you submit it, they simulate it, and later on in the evening, they give you back your results. So the 2019-2020 rookie first team, if you all didn't remember, was John Morant, Kendrick Nunn, Brandon Clark, Eric Pascal, and Zion Williamson. So I look at that team again. John Morant, Kendrick Nunn, Brandon Clark, Eric Pascal, and Zion Williamson. My first question was, where's the shooting? Kendrick Nunn's had a rough year and can shoot the three, but not super great. Same with John Morant. Brandon Clark doesn't stretch the floor. Eric Pascal can, but with the way he shoots it, do you really want him to? And Zion Williamson doesn't do it all either. He's not a threat there either. So I looked and I went, okay, if I want to get a team to match up with this team, uh, I also wanted to get some size. So I wanted to get some longer, taller players. I thought, okay, we're going to have some offense because I don't think I'm going to be able to stop Zion, but I want to make Zion work as well. Um... I want to have some shooting to space the floor and make it difficult for any of the 2019-2020 rookie first team to double up on me. This is what I was trying to go with. So I selected at my guards, Luka Doncic and Malcolm Brogdon, who at 6'5", I thought had some good size. At forwards, I went with Brandon Ingram and Kelly Olenek. Again, the thinking being, hey, I wanted to make sure that I had uh, guys who create their own offense. I want to make sure I had floor spacing um, bigs. And then at center, I had Alperin Shangun, who I thought, yes, this fits with the I'm going with. Bigs who can, you know, force um, the play swoops team to have some trouble guarding them defensively while having just enough continuity across the board between on ball, you know, from scratch creation, shooting from all three levels, finishing around the basket at a high level, rebounding. I was really impressed with this team and thought I would win. So imagine my surprise, we lost. And not even close, 90 to 73. Insane. John Morant went off, 31 points, 7 rebounds, and 14 assists. 17 points for Brandon Clark, along with 11 rebounds, and um, 20, um, 22 for Zion Williamson. And then for our team, not super great. 21 points for Luka Doncic with 7 rebounds and 3 assists. Come on now. Luka's going to put those numbers against those cats. Get out of here. 19 points for Brandon Ingram. Five rebounds. I'd like to have seen some more scoring from him. 14 for Alperin Shingun, along with six rebounds and five assists. And then 13 for Malcolm Brockton and six for Kelly Olenek. But he did have 11 boards. So that was the challenge there. And yeah, I'm kind of mad I lost. 90-73, really don't see how I lost that game. My team was superior. Uh, and I told Soups as much on Twitter. Like, nah, nah, fam, that's not it. That's not it. I'm not going to go for that. All right, looking ahead to today's game. So the MLK slate is set. It's going to start on NBA TV at 1 p.m. Eastern between the Boston Celtics and the Charlotte Hornets, which is really just a matchup of two teams going in different directions. The Celtics are one of the best teams in the NBA, especially in the East, uh, while the Hornets are one of the worst teams in the NBA. The Celtics have won six straight wins so far. The Hornets have lost four in a row. Boston's also won its last four games played on MLK Day, including a matchup against these same Charlotte Hornets back in 2017. TNT is going to have their doubleheader shortly after. 
Um, one is going to be Miami versus Atlanta, which is a rematch of last year's first round series, easily won by the Heat. Uh, right now, the Heat and the Hawks are deadlocked here at 7th and 9th in the NBA Eastern Conference playoff tournament ladder, or playing tournament ladder. The Heat are 24 and 20, the Hawks in 21 and 22. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the Heat are playing, uh, especially against Atlanta team that's also been playing pretty solidly. The Heat have won three in a row, Atlanta's won two in a row, uh, and we're going to see how they match up. Phoenix at Memphis is the second game. Uh, that's another game where two teams going in opposite directions. Uh, Memphis going up, Phoenix turning down. We will see what happens here, especially since they'll be playing in Memphis. So definitely going to be interesting to see how the Suns uh, bounce back, especially since they're just 1-8 in their last nine games, and they've been held before below 100 points four times in their last seven. 10.30, Eastern Time on NBA TV. LeBron James and the Lakers will play against the Houston Rockets. This will be LeBron James' 11th MLK Day game in his career. In his first 10, he has gone just 3 of 7 and had 23 points on 45% shooting and 24% from 3, along with 6 rebounds, 5 assists, and a couple steals. But the point is, he hasn't had a winning record on MLK Day, and you have to hope that that changes soon because the Lakers need to bounce back in a major way against the Houston Rockets, a team that they haven't had problems with but can definitely come in and surprise them. So we'll see. Uh, on League Pass, it'll be Indiana versus Milwaukee at 2.30. New Orleans versus Cleveland at 3, which is the final game of a five-game road trip for the Pelicans. Uh, we've been playing with Zion and Brandon Ingram. Uh, Toronto versus New York, uh, back second half back-to-back for the Knicks, uh, where Julius Reynolds had pretty good success um, against the Raptors in the pass. Then at 3 p.m. Eastern, you have Golden State versus Washington, another game. Third game of a five-game road trip where the Warriors just have to prove that they need to play better and can play better on the road. Uh, they have the biggest disparity between a home record and a road record in the NBA this season. They were 17-5 at home, 4-16 and away. It's been crazy. And then the last league pass game is Utah versus Minnesota. This should be interesting. This will conclude the Rudy Gobert, Timberwolves versus Jazz matchup discussion, all of it. So we'll see. Uh, the road team has won their first two meetings of the season. Utah beat Minnesota in overtime, and then Minnesota won in Utah. And both teams now enter the MLK Day matchup in the 7-10 through 10 range. So definitely going to be interesting to see where that is. All right. Well, I've rambled for almost an hour. One more thing to bring up. Today is, or yesterday rather, was the 21st anniversary of Allen Iverson scoring his career-high 58 points against the Houston Rockets. And this wasn't the Tracy McGrady Houston Rockets. This was the Stevie franchise, Steve Francis Houston Rockets. So really good for Allen Iverson to do that. Um, The game was on NBA TV. I'm sure you can look it up as well. Allen Iverson was definitely a blur back then. And to just watch the game and being a fan of the history of the game itself, I had a total blast just enjoying that and wanted to bring it to your attention. Alright y'all, but that will do it here for another episode of Roundball Ramble, so definitely make sure to follow me on Twitter if you are so inclined at CorbinNBA. Make sure to check out Sports Ethos on Twitter at SportsEthos online, SportsEthos.com. Really appreciate y'all taking the time to rock with me here. And I just want to say thank y'all so much. Definitely give me any feedback you want. I am going to take it. But until next time, my friends, I am Frosty. Y'all stay frosty. And I'll talk to y'all real real soon. Aye, y'all.